Good after good morning, I should say. I'm Susie Jones, and you are listening to Your Money. Happy to have you with us. And again, if you're listening and you have a question at any time, you can call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, one eight 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 six advice. I always can email your questions as well, your financial questions to your money at wealthenhancement.com. But in the next 50 minutes or so, you can call or text our studio line at 651-461-9226. Now here is the founder of Wealth Enhancement Group and financial advisor, Bruce Helmer, and senior vice president and financial advisor, Peg Webb. Welcome to both of you. Good morning, Susie. Good morning, Bruce. Hello, Peg. Hello, Susie. And again, and I mean this sincerely, you know, I don't just say this for the listening audience. I always enjoy being uh, with you ladies, even if it's not in person. I enjoy our uh, our getting together for an hour once a week like this. I, I really do. Hey, hey, Peg and Susie, today we're going to talk about uh, the effectiveness of what's called a 60-40 portfolio. And we're going to explain what that is. But, Peg, also I wanted to get out right at the very beginning. We're talking about this because this is something that the media has been talking about, and we'll explain why that's true also. But this would not be something that you and I would talk to clients about or that you and I would probably talk to any about because it's one of those rules of thumb or default positions that the world kind of looks at the wealth enhancement group does not. We don't have you know a rule of thumb in terms of what the asset allocation should be for any particular client. That's going to vary client by client based on their goals and objectives, based on their core values, their time horizon to retirement, their desired lifestyle, all these things that make them them. That's going to determine the, the percentage that we have in stocks and bonds and other asset classes. We don't have a default position, but this is something that the world is talking about, so we thought we should talk about it and, and quantify it, and uh, um, and it's it's out there, so we'd be, uh, re- I think we'd be remiss if we just ignored it. Peg? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Bruce, and I was going through the outline. Um, we do a call about the outline like a week or, or sometimes two weeks ahead, and I thought, This isn't what we do, but I love what you said because the media is talking about it all the time. Specifically, what is a 60-40 portfolio? I thought we should probably define what that is. And what it is is super simple. 60% in the stock market or growth and 40% in fixed income like bonds and cash. And so it's not technically hovering in the middle 50-50, if it it's just historically kind of, and I would actually kind of call it a myth, that if you have 60% growth and you have 40% fixed over the long term, you know, your effective rate of return is going to make you live happily ever after. And so you're right, Bruce, Wealth Enhancement Group does not um, abide by this uh, 60-40. But, but if you have... Uh, invested in a 60-40 portfolio in the past, guess what? It's actually really worked. It's worked because the stock market has done so good. I mean, we've talked about it on the show before. I mean, the last 13 years have almost been a straight line up. 
So even if you were 60% um, in the stock market and you had 40% sitting at 0%, which we were talking about, Bruce, for years, you couldn't earn anything on your money like in the bank, you still did well because the stock market did so well. But right now, here's where we are. And this, I got to tell you, I mean, I've been doing this for decades of time. And I don't remember exactly when stocks and bonds are both deeply in the red. And so I think, Bruce, that's why they're talking about the 60-40 portfolio in the media and saying, is that actually going to work in the future because it actually has worked in the past? Bruce? Yeah, um, that's a great lead-in um, to understand what it is. And, and it has worked in the past. Um, but it has, it has not worked the first six or seven months of this year. And then, Peg, we've seen times before, you know, again, uh, for listeners that don't know, generally speaking, stocks and bonds um, react opposite to one another. Generally speaking, if, if stocks are doing well, then bonds might not be, or if bonds are doing well, then stocks might not be. But there can be periods of time where they're both doing well, and that's great, and there can be short periods of time where they're both doing poorly, and that's awful, and that's what's happened so far in 2022. And I think that's why everybody's nervous and why there's, there's media stories about, you know, is this an obsolete strategy um, just because it has not been very good the last six months. Peg? Yeah, you know, Wealth Enhancement Group has always, um, you know, created portfolios that have stocks and bonds and cash. But we kind of look at diversification differently because most people would say, oh, yeah, I'm diversified. I have some stocks. I have some bonds. Well, Wealth Enhancement Group actually kind of assesses more so risk in different asset classes, and we look at it differently, and how we look at it differently would be company risk, like how um, how great is this particular company? What's their future earnings look like? Interest rate risk, that's actually a risk in itself, meaning are we at zero interest rates? Are we at 5% five, 5 interest rates? Um, purchasing power risk. That's inflation. We haven't talked about inflation for so many years, but Wealth Enhancement Group has always, always looked at purchasing power risk. You know, how much do you pay for something today versus what are our clients going to have to pay for something down the road? And then manager risk. Like, who's watching your money? Is it yourself? Is it, is it some professional that's watching your money? And then this inflation, I have to say, is, you know, it's rampant right now. And that is the absolute reason why we're sitting at negative stocks and we're sitting at negative bonds is because we've got inflation that's at a 40-year high. The Fed is being so aggressive, as aggressive as I've ever seen them, trying to reverse monetary policy. And you know what? Um, COVID is not gone. So that's still a concern out there. And then the supply chain disruptions as well. And I could go on and on, Bruce, about why we're sitting in these this uh, negative territory for stocks and bonds. But um, I have to say this particular point in time in my decades of career is unique. I have I have not I've not seen it 
um, in probably 30 years, Bruce. Yeah, this prolongs uh, uh, lasting this long. I, I agree. I don't. I don't remember it ever happening. It probably has, but I, I, I don't remember when. You know, I'm glad you went to, um, and, and again, I always say, we, we always say, we have kind of an outline, but even in the call this week, you know, someone joked about whether or not we actually follow the outline or here we go off in yeah, different directions. And, <laughs> and I always kind of go where my brain takes me, and I, I didn't know you were going to go to risk like that, and I, and I, and I like that you did. Um, and, and the show is not long enough, and it's, it gets kind of technical to talk about all the various risks that we look at. But when I do public speaking, the one I, I use as an example is company risk, because company risk is real, and a lot of portfolio managers don't diversify to this, uh, to this degree. So what we mean by company risk, you know, if we're going to diversify by stocks and bonds, because they tend to have a converse relationship with one another, so we're going to have some of both. But if we buy stocks and bonds in the same company, and that company fails, goes bankrupt, it doesn't matter that we diversified by asset class of stocks and bonds. We had company risk because we had too many assets in that one company. So we don't want to, to the extent that it's possible, we don't want to own stocks and bonds in the same place. So yeah, we take you know our diversification down to that level. So not not only by asset class, but by risk. And the other thing we didn't mention, we diversify from a tax standpoint. Also, we talk about this a lot, but I don't think we can do it too often. We talk about diversifying by some of our investments are fully and immediately taxable. Some of them are tax deferred or tax delayed, and some of them may be tax advantaged, where we avoid taxes altogether. So we want to diversify and have all three tax categories. We want to diversify by risk, and yes, we want to diversify by asset class, which everybody does, but we, but we do take it to a deeper level. And I'm not trying to do a commercial, but that's just the reality. Again, I'm trying to differentiate between what we do and what the world does and what, what the media talks about. Yeah, and Bruce, I think, you know, um talking about the 60/40 portfolio, it, it it in my entire career, it has been kind of the go-to, if you will, when you assess people's risk tolerance. And clients' risk tolerance, they all have a bias based on what's happening in the world right now. It isn't forward looking and that's why people hire us is because we have to walk through, you know, how much risk are you willing to take and how we start that. And I know we're going to sound like a broken record here, but first we have to ask you, you know, what's important to you? Um, How much money do you need to live on? It's almost like we back into the risk that we need to um, make sure that you're you know, that you are able to do whatever you want to do in life, uh, whether that's, you know, vacation every year, um, buying a second home, leaving a legacy for your kids. So that's why the 60-40 agenda today is a little difficult for us because we haven't haven't had to do it. But I think most people listening today have heard that in, in the past. And so I think some people think there's some magic behind it. And that's the best thing to do because that's what everybody else does. But um, I, I totally disagree, Bruce. 
Yeah, to, to, that's a great point. To, the, to your point, Peg, that people evaluate based on the right now. So the reason we're talking about this is because the world's talking about this. But um, I kind of tip my hand right at, just in the introduction in that I'm going to just give the answer. If a 60-40 portfolio made sense for you before the beginning of this year, it probably still makes sense. I'm not going to recommend anybody, and I'm not personally going to go make wholesale changes just based on something that has happened for six months. Now, if it keeps going longer and longer, you may suddenly you know, re- get to a point where my return is not as high as I need it to be to meet my goals and objectives, so maybe I need to go a little more in equity. Maybe I need a 65-35 or a 70-30. But I don't think we make those changes just based on six months of results. And like I've said many times the past couple of weeks, if we did a forecast for somebody five years ago and we made an assumption, and these forecasts have to be linear, life is not, but the forecast has to be, we're going to assume an aggregate rate of return on your money. And let's say we assumed 6% because you're diversified and you've got some money in growth, some in fixed income, some in cash, et cetera. And so we assume an aggregate return on your money of 6%. If you've, had, had, if you've been working with us three, five, seven, ten years, your returns over the, uh, coming into this year were so high that even with this retraction, your average annual return is still well above the bogey, the 6% assumption that we made. You're still fine. You're not in any danger. But, but again, I think people, um, two things. Number one, when we talk about stocks and bonds having a converse relationship with each other, someone might say, well, if, if, if you know bonds are going to do bad this year, why do you buy them? I mean, why do you buy bulls? if you know one of them is going to do poorly? And the answer is we don't know which one is going to do poorly in the mm-hmm. short term. And nobody does, but we're, we're one of the few firms that are still willing to stand up and admit we don't know what will happen in the short term. And anyone that tells you otherwise is misguided or dishonest. We don't know, so we hedge our bet and we buy both. And then occasionally, not very often because my clients are pretty well coached up, but occasionally you'll you'll sit at a review meeting and and the client will say, you know, everything looks good overall, but bonds or this asset class or this this uh this part of my portfolio didn't do well even though the whole whole portfolio did. Why do you have that in there? And the answer always is is because next year that might be the best thing in the portfolio. We diversify and and asset classes what does better, what does worse? changes from year to year, but nobody knows in advance of that year what the winners and losers are going to be. So we put bets on all of them. And then they come back the next year and they say, boy, I'm sure glad you had that asset class in there because it did really well this year, even though it didn't last year. But again, people think short term, they look at something, they go, overall, I'm doing great, but this thing is awful. Why do they have that awful thing in there? There's a logical reason why that awful thing is in there, Peg. Yeah, in in a wealth enhancement group, um, to kind of piggyback on what you just said, uh, we believe in, I already mentioned it at the beginning of the show, uh, called effective diversification. Well, then I went on to all these different types of risk, but to guard you against all those types of risk, especially inflation, that's not new to us. So wealth enhancement group has created 
portfolios is but Bruce, you just talked about some are up, some are down. Um, they provide us as advisors portfolios. One's called inflation protection, and we utilize this inflation protection sleeve, if you will. That's what we call these. And they're portfolios that are actually skewed heavily towards things that do well when interest rates are rising and things like commodities and currency and these treasury inflation protection bonds that I've talked about um, a lot this year because of inflation going up. This sleeve has always, always been available to us. And if you think about it, usually if interest rates are rising, that means traditionally the economy is doing well. Uh, the Fed has, you know, is able to raise rates, slow down the consumer from spending, and then this inflation prote- protection sleeve does well. We also have another sleeve called the low correlation sleeve, and that's just a strategy that um, it's just being more defensive in things that really don't correlate at all to the stock market. And I don't want to get into the weeds about this, but just that Wealth Enhancement Group has additional um, investments that we put in the portfolio to safeguard against what's happening right now. Bruce? We said at the outset, we're talking about this because the world's talking about this, so we felt we should address it. But we said this, you know, you said you looked at the outline and go, that's not us. And I did the same thing. So for listeners, just for clarity, what we would do and what we do do with our clients is we probably have three different investment portfolios. And we've talked about this a lot, but again, Peg, it's one of those things that I don't think we can talk about too often because the world still generally doesn't get it. So we might have a 60-40 portfolio, and that might be what we call your midterm money, money that you know you don't need in the next few years, but you might need it, say, in five to ten years. So if you're in your... uh, if you're in your mid or late 50s and it's IRA money, maybe you're gonna, maybe we, we would put that or some of that into a midterm portfolio, and that might be a 60/40 or a 70/30 or a 55/45, kind of a middle of the road, broadly diversified portfolio. But we're also gonna have clients with short-term money, which is all or mostly cash with no risk of principal or very, very, very little risk of principal. And then we're going to have longer term money, which is almost all stock or growth. So we're going to, we're going to, 60-40 might be part of the overall allocation, but with Wealth Enhancement Group, it's virtually never going to be the entire allocation. So I want, I wanted to clarify that. So Peg, We've got a couple of minutes yet before we have to go to break, and in the break, we hope listeners will join us in this discussion. But um, other key takeaways uh, that you can think of that we want to make sure we convey before we go to the break? Absolutely. One is rebalance. So if you are 60% in the stock market and 40% in bonds and they're both down, guess what? Bonds are not down as much as stocks are. So now's the time, and I know people don't want to do it, but now's the time to rebalance. That just means that you should take some of your bond money and go buy stocks to get back to 60-40 because you're probably sitting at 50-50 right now because they're not down equally. Bruce? Yeah, and and, and again, when we talk about um, making changes, we might make changes based on – 
investment results or what's going on in the global economy. We do look at that and we do pay attention, but we're more likely going to make changes based on your personal circumstance, life changes. You quit work earlier, you got sick, you won the lottery, you got a raise. Those are the things that we're more likely going to influence our decision-making. And at the end of the day, when we manage a portfolio, and Susie, I'll close with this for the first half, we want to get the rate of return that you need to be successful, but we want to get that rate of return with the least amount of risk possible. So we do care about risk, but we don't let the client tell us what their risk tolerance is. We let them tell us what they want to achieve. Then based on that, we take the risk that is necessary to get them to where they want to be. All right. Uh, let's stop there, and then second half, hopefully listeners will join us. All right, very good. And if you are listening and you have a question in the next half hour here, the number to call or text is 651-461-9226, 651-461-9226. That is the number to call if you want to join the program right now. If you want to save your question and call a little bit later, that's always a possibility. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, one 8886 advice or you can always email your questions as well to your money at wealthenhancement.com we're back after this welcome back and reminding you if you have a financial question for bruce or peg you can call 24 hours a day seven days a week that number is 18886 advice you can also email your questions to your money at wealthenhancement.com but for the next 25 minutes we're taking your calls and your texts on our studio line here at 651-461-9226 now here is the founder of wealth enhancement group and financial advisor bruce helmer and senior vice president and financial advisor peg webb welcome back we have a caller guys if you want to take Jared in St. Paul's on our news line. Jared, go ahead. You're on with Bruce and Peg. Good morning, Bruce and Peg and Susie. I had a question if uh, uh, either of you have any experience with It's an acronym called the ABLE account, A-B-L-E. Jared, thanks for listening. Thanks uh, for the call and the question. ABLE, A-B-L-E. Peg, I got to admit that that's not a term I'm familiar with. How about you? Yeah, it's um it's actually a savings account and it's it's actually for uh qualified disability mm-hmm. um expenses. I don't know a lot about it. Um it is such a special account and okay. my clients have utilized it, but I don't know a whole lot about it. But it is a, it and it's not that old. It probably uh existed it's probably existed for maybe three years now not not too long bruce um yeah i i didn't even uh, didn't even know the terminology didn't know the acronym obviously it stands for something and they spelled out it makes sense when you give the answer able um, but obviously it's uh, an acronym for something sorry jared that we don't know more i'm gonna You've actually got me curious, though. I'm going to go do some research on that one. Susie? All right. Well, we've got some text questions as well. I'll just run through just a few shout-outs to you guys. Uh, If we sell our home, this is another one. If we sell our home for a million dollars, are we able to buy a home and take home the money to avoid the greatest tax? I guess um, they want to know about doing something if they sell their house for a million dollars and invest it in a residence are they still responsible for the capital gains? 
Yeah, thank you for that, Susie. So, Peg, um, it's funny how, to me, how often this has come up recently, the misunderstanding of how taxes work when you sell a residence that you live in as compared to selling investment real estate or a vacation property. You want to go through that again for people on how that works if you sell the residence you live in and how it's different? Yeah, I totally agree with you, Bruce. This is coming up all the time because our clients are actually what they are calling downsizing. So they're selling their two-story home and they're moving to a, maybe a one level and um, they've had this home for a very long time. But um, I'll talk a little bit about what the rule used to be, Bruce. It was if you were 55 or older, you were able to sell your house. And then if you did owe any money for this tax that I'm going to talk about in a minute, you had to roll over and buy another house that was at least um, the same or um, greater in value. Long, long time ago, it changed to this new rule which is if you sell your house for a million dollars, you actually have to figure out how much did you pay for that house and how many improvements did you put into that house. And then that's called your cost basis. And then the cost basis is important. So let's just pretend here that it was 400000 and this, And they, they're selling their house now for a million. Well, that leaves 600000 that really is what's called capital gains. And the rule today is each of us get 250000 tax-free, um, and you don't have to buy a bigger home. You don't even have to buy a home um, again. You could go rent. And so if it's a husband and wife or it's two people you know, living in the home, then you have 500000 worth of tax-free money. So in this example that I just gave, where there's 600,000 capital gains, then you do have to report 100,000 on your income tax. Um, and you could repeat this process too, meaning you can go move into another home. And then if you live in it two out of the last five years, you can get another, you know, 250,000. Um, Bruce, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, just a little bit. That was that was a great answer. So in Peg's example, where their cost basis was four hundred thousand, and again, I'm I'm glad that Peg said this, but I want to reemphasize it. It's not just the price you paid for the home, but if after you bought it, you put on a new roof for twenty thousand dollars or a new uh, air conditioning unit for ten thousand, those things all add to your basis. But in Peg's example, if your basis was say five hundred thousand dollars and you sold it for a million you don't have any tax obligation at all and it doesn't matter if you buy another home or not that has nothing to do with it anymore the tax is based on the gain uh, on the on the sale of your home and it doesn't matter what you do with the money if you rent if you buy another place if you if you it, it has absolutely no bearing on anything and the other thing i'm glad peg went down this road Peg, I've had clients, and I bet you have too, that have a primary residence. They sell it, and, and, and the gain is less than 500000 so they, they're able to sell it without a tax liability. But they might have a second home or a vacation home, which if they sold that, that would be subjected to tax 
uh, taxes on the gain. So rather than sell that and have to pay the taxes, they will go establish residency there and live there for at least two years. Then they can sell that vacation home that maybe they've owned for 20 years, but now they've lived there for two of the last five. They can now sell that property and maybe avoid the capital gain. So it, it, it all gets down to whether you reside in the property or not for two of the previous five years or more, uh, two years or more of the previous five years, and what exactly is the gain. But we can each exclude 250000 of gain, so a married couple that comes out to a half million dollars. But it's been this way, Peg, for, for a really long time. I'm surprised how many people still go back to the old law. I don't even know when it changed, but it's been a long either. time. Yeah. Yeah, I don't either. But people ask, ask me, though, the clients ask me, why? Like, why 250000 a piece? Uh, at, at the time when the law uh, became the law is in we, we reside in Minnesota, right? And so the houses here, the cost of them uh, was very dissimilar to California or Manhattan, New York City. So people that have million, $3 million houses, you know, instead of a million, the IRS wanted to capture uh, some capital gains on those houses. So they're not, they didn't just think of the Midwest when they came up with the, the new rule. They were thinking about, um, you know, coast to coast, west to east. Bruce? Yep. Uh, and, and, and again, I can't tell you how many times that's come up recently and it surprised me. But what, what else? <laughs> But Peg and Susie, the other thing that's fun about that mm. is the reaction of people when they're like, really, I don't have to pay any taxes. They're so <laughs> yeah. happy and excited because they didn't, they didn't even know that. So that's, that's fun news to give to somebody. Hey, hey, Susie, before we get back to listeners' questions, Peg, I just wanted to check in with you. I apologize for not doing this sooner. Usually when we come back from break, uh, during the break, you think of something that you wanted to add to the discussion or, or give clarity or, or uh, give a key takeaway for listeners. Um, do you want to tie a bow on the, what we talked about in the first half of the show? If you joined us late, folks, we were talking about the traditional 60-40 portfolio and whether or not that's obsolete or that's something that sh uh, should still be used today with what's going on in the world. But, uh, Peg, any final thoughts on that before we just go to any and all questions that listeners have? Well, I think if um, it's almost as if we're asking people to just uh, come without any bias at all and, you know, um, you should you should know what's important to you. You should know what you what your values are. You should know what you spend um, because all of those things back into what allocation you should be in. And I'm not saying that we decide that you should be a 60 40 or we decide you should be a 70 percent in the stock markets, 30 percent in all these other things that can move uh, during your lifetime. Because what I find is people spend more money when they retire in the beginning. There's such a list of all these things that my clients want to do. And so when I do these financial forecasts, I plug in more money for travel and, you know, um, spending money on their grandkids and that kind of thing in the first 10 years. Then it tapers off. And so 
that actually can change the asset allocation or the mix. And then the second point I want to make is I don't think you can just simply say I'm going to own this many, uh, this much in the stock market and I'm going to own this much in bonds and I'm going to have this much in cash. I feel like the, the world is a lot more complex today. And so for the, when you're thinking about the future returns, I do think you have to look at what I talked about, all these different types of risk. You need to um, have more diversification these days than I think you had, had to have in the past. So those were the two points, Bruce. Well, the only thing I want to add, and I know uh, Susie's got questions for us, but um, you know, it, it, the 60-40 rule of thumb, a lot of people also go by, or it used to be a thing, again, never with us, but what percentage of my savings and investments, what percentage of my money should be in the stock market? And they had a formula where you took 100 and you subtracted your age and the percentage or the, the, the remainder should be in stock. So if I'm 60, 100 minus 60 means I should be 40% in stocks. Or if I'm 70, I should be 30% in stocks. That's just ridiculous. Again, each person's situation is going to be so different, and we need the stock exposure to get the return that you need to be successful based on how you measure success. And then we don't, we don't want any more risk than we have to take, but we have to have enough stock exposure to get the return that you want or the return that you need. I wanted to mention that really quickly. And then also really quickly, Peg and Susie, um, a lot of people are very pessimistic based on how bad the first six months were. I do want to say that July was better than the first six months. I think July, the market was actually up a little bit. And I, I did some research, Peg. I, I, I looked up... Um, there's only been, this is the fifth time since 1929 that the first six months of the year that the S&P 500 was down 20% or more. And the previous four times that this happened, the, if you looked at the, at the S&P a year later, it was robustly up three years, five years, even more up. So historically, the other four times this happened, it was followed by a very rapid market recovery. Now, again, that doesn't guarantee it'll happen this time, but there's some historical precedents for quick recovery. So people should not be too doom and gloom out there. I think this too shall pass. Susie? All right. We have a caller on the line. Mike has a question for Bruce and Peg. Go ahead, Mike. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, guys. appreciate your show and uh, doing the 60-40 thing, and it seems to be serving me well. All right. So, I'm retired. I'm a public employee, former public employee. I drew my pension, hit the rule of 90, drew my pension about five years ago. My wife's going to retire in October, and, we have, and we've been surviving the past five years on my pension and her salary and doing fine. So my question is, she's going to retire. She also can draw a pension from the Public Employee Retirement Association. We have... Uh, different spigots that we can draw income from to make up hers. One is to draw her pension. She does not qualify for the rule of 90. Uh, we could, I have not, I'm 64. I've not touched my social security yet. That's a possibility. She'll be 62 in May, next May. So we could draw her social security then. Or my mother left us a uh, IRA that we rolled over and we rolled it over after 2020. So we have to draw that down within 10 years. I understand. So for tax efficient purposes and 
Uh, I'm just looking for what you guys would recommend for uh, um, for us to uh, sustain life after she retires. Okay. Mm-hmm. Peg, Bruce? Yeah, Mike, thanks for listening. Thanks for your kind words. And Peg, what a great question. There's actually about 20 questions there. We could probably do an entire show on, uh, on, the, on the situation that Mike shared with us. Uh, I'll let you go first. Thoughts? And, and again, what, what Mike's talking about is retirement income planning or spending the smartest money first. How do you determine of those various options what he should be spending to replace his wife's paycheck when she stops working? feel like I'm at the office right now because every single client is <laughs> I know that. <laughs> and actually it's a puzzle. The job that we do every single day is like the biggest puzzle that you've ever done um, on maybe your kitchen table. So in this case, what the, the number one thing I, I thought that I want to bring up, because there is so many avenues that I can go down is, do you turn on your social security early as a source for income? I mean, I get this question every single day. Should I leave my, um, you know, let's say pension to grow more? Should I leave my IRAs to grow more? Should I subsidize my, um, you know, my cost of living and turn on my social security? So we do a, a social security analysis to see if it makes sense. And especially when you have two people here, we have Mike and then we have Mike's wife, then the answer may be different for each of them. So you might turn on Mike's Social Security before. I'm not a big fan these days of turning. You guys are super young. I'm not a big fan of turning on Social Security when you're this young because the rules of Social Security are if you leave it, you're going to between 62 and your full retirement age, Social Security adds an additional 6% on your social security payment for the rest of your life. And then if you and if you get to full retirement age and you still don't turn it on, they will give you 8% um, on simple interest until your age of 70. So we like to work on uh, and look at the social security uh, with a really fine tooth comb because once you turn it on, Yes, you have one year to go back and say, just kidding, I don't want my Social Security. But it is a very permanent um, decision. So that point I wanted to make. And then um, there's, no, there's, there's no reason to not look at an inherited IRA as income. I think out there we were talking about the 60-40 today, Bruce, and that's just a bias. And I also think a bias is that people don't want to pull their IRA money out, you know, if they don't have to. But it is a source of income. And then why I might look at that is because it's not a permanent decision. You can take out a percentage of that money. And then taxes matter in everything you do. So here's where the puzzle comes in again. How does that affect your taxes And I know that um, Mike's wife was working, so obviously that income was already coming on the tax return. And to replace that income, you may want to pull out some um, from that IRA. So, Bruce, that's my two cents. Um, and, and again, that's the, I agree with everything Peg said. Uh, I'm, I'll go a little bit slightly different place with my brain. 
Um, not all listeners might know what Mike was referring to with rule of 90. So that's just uh, if you take your years of service on the job plus your age, and if that number equals 90, you can retire and take your full pension. Um, Mike said he qualified for rule of 90. His wife's not going to. Um, and I, I also thought, Peg, how fortunate for Mike and his wife to be blessed with great pensions because, you know, as financial advisors, we see it less and less every year. Public employees, school teachers still have pensions, but most of the private sector does not have pensions anymore. They have 401k plans. Not, not that that's a bad thing necessarily. Um, 401ks can be very attractive, but boy, that guaranteed income from a pension plan. And then I want to jump on piggyback what Peg talked about with regard to taxes. Um, yes, your paycheck is fully taxable and withdrawals from an IRA are fully taxable. Pension income is fully taxable. But maybe if you're at the bumping into the top of another bracket, and, and if you take more taxable income, it causes bracket creep and takes you from a 12% to a 22% bracket, maybe we would look at, is there any Roth money that you can use as income or non-qualified or non-IRA money? That's taxable, but the tax consequences are less because you pay taxes every year along the way uh, on the interest you earned or on the gains that you had. So if you spend some of that money, it doesn't change the tax as much. So um, we want to look at soaking up the bracket you're already going to be in anyway, but then trying to prevent bracket creep. And then sometimes there's no way to do that, so it doesn't matter. But Peg is right. It's It's a puzzle, Mike. And you're very fortunate and very blessed to have two pensions and Social Security and this inherited IRA and whatever options you have. It's nice to have options. And whatever the best thing to do is this year, it might be different next year. You have to look at it every year. Unfortunately, it's not a set it and forget it type of thing. But you're in a very enviable position, and uh, we, we, we wish you well. I wish, you, I wish we could give a more precise, more specific answer, but it's really hard to do that on the radio. And Susie... I know we're running out of time. Yes, we are. I don't know if you can answer this in 30 seconds. On that rule of 90, the texture says, does it have to be all in the same career? And we have 10 seconds, like five seconds. Do you know oh, the answer um, quickly? No, I think it can be different jobs. But if, if it was all public, if they were a public employee, but they had different jobs, okay. I don't think that matters. All right, very good. Thanks, guys. We really appreciate your time this week. And there were many people that did not get their questions answered. So please write this number down, one eight 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 six advice Or you can email your questions to yourmoney at wealthenhancement.com.